The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. I'd like to invite you now to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the New Testament in Matthew 5. You'll see that there is an Old Testament reading this morning in Leviticus 24. So, uh, if you want to be prepared to go there, that would be wonderful. We'll turn there in, in just a moment. But first, we want to be in Matthew chapter 5. So, uh, open with me to Matthew 5. Uh, we have been uh, spending time together in the Lord's famous Sermon on the Mount, uh, found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this morning, we come to Matthew 5 and verse 38. And as you're turning there and as you're preparing the Old Testament reading in Leviticus 24, I want to ask uh, you uh, how do you go about proving your citizenship? How do you go about proving your citizenship? I've uh, been recently getting some paperwork from the Secretary of State's office, having moved. We've got to update documents. Uh, Mackenzie's got to update her license. We've got to do all these things, right, to update this legal information. And to do that, you need like 27 forms of identification when you go to the DMV, don't you? You need a new bill and an old bill and an old license and a new license and a birth certificate and you need also a blood sample, whatever. You need all kinds of things, don't you, to prove your citizenship in the United States of America. Well, how would you go about proving your citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? How do you go about proving your citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? We don't have an identification card, no license per se, to be a Christian believer. Of course, we understand that the gospel teaches us that we come into the kingdom by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we come into the kingdom, through faith. But then once you're in the kingdom, how would you prove your citizenship in that kingdom? We enter in by faith. What then? What does it look like to prove your citizenship in the kingdom of Christ? Well, Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, in many ways, it looks like this. Proving your citizenship looks like this as your character and your life is transformed and shaped to be more like me, Jesus is saying to us. And along the way, Jesus has been teaching many, many important things. And every time we come up against one of his teachings, oftentimes it pricks something in our conscience. As the Holy Spirit, as it were, places his finger on a spot in our heart and in our life that yet needs more growth and more transformation. And this morning we come to a teaching block that is utterly practical. Maybe even we should say sometimes painfully practical as Jesus addresses sometimes that dark corner of our heart that we don't like the light to shine on. But as the light shines on it, we have a means of, as it were, demonstrating our citizenship in the kingdom of God. Jesus says it looks like this this morning. So we want to hear his word to us, teaching us that very thing. So let's first pray and ask God's blessing on the word this morning, and then we will hear Jesus teaching us in Matthew 5. Oh Lord God, what a blessed thing it is to be gathered here in this place, to be gathered together to worship you, the triune God. We come now with your word open before us, asking that as your spirit so inspired Matthew to record this word for us, that that same spirit might rest upon our minds to illuminate our understanding, might rest upon 
our hearts to transform us. And so, Lord God, even as we read Your Word, may Your Word read us this morning. Bless to us the reading, hearing, and proclamation of Your Word, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Amen. And now, hear the Word of God from Matthew chapter 5, under the heading Retaliation in verse 38. This is the Word of God. You have heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. May He write its eternal truth on our hearts this morning. And again, keep your Bible open here in Matthew 5 and be ready to go to Leviticus 24 in just a moment. But uh, we come now to uh, the, the next section of Jesus' teaching blocks. Uh, where you find him saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, interestingly, when we come to this particular section, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are many famous quotes that people like to cite Jesus saying, and then suppose that he means one thing or the other. And, And this text for us this morning is perhaps most often applied in such a broad way with both understanding and misunderstanding. We want to see this morning that there is a really broad way of misunderstanding this text. This passage, like others, is often misunderstood, but this one especially. Let me give you just a couple examples of the way this text is, if you like, hijacked to suggest that Jesus is saying something that I want to be clear that He is not saying. On the one hand, There are those people who go to this particular text and suggest, uh, see, Jesus is opposed to capital punishment. They, They suggest that Jesus is opposed to capital punishment. And they suggest, well, that was the law of the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But we follow the law of the Old Testament Uh, No longer the Old Testament, now the New Testament, the law of love. There should be no such thing as capital punishment across all society. It's wrong to punish people everywhere. Uh, That is not what Jesus is teaching. Now, we could say more about that, but that's not what this particular sermon is about. On the other hand, people might say, you see, Jesus is clearly teaching universal pacifism here. It is requisite for Christian believers to be pacifists. We need to lay down all of our arms, unilaterally disarm all citizenship, and we just need to be totally pacifists and refuse to be involved in any war whatsoever. If anyone wants to take us over, we just need to let them. And they suggest Jesus is teaching universal pacifism here. No. Others have said Jesus is clearly teaching a social ethic of non-resistance, meaning people can do anything they want to you and you can't resist anything. That's not the case either. So clearly, none of those things, this passage, like others that we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, is liable to misunderstanding often. But just like it is in our day, it was in Jesus' day as well, which is why Jesus is always teaching again in that format. You've heard it said, but I say. 
so as to clarify how the law of God finds itself applicable in the life of a Christian believer. Because we are Christians, we have a Bible with two Testaments, and we don't chuck out the Old Testament. We need to understand what is the relationship between the law of God as given in the Old Testament in application for the life of a Christian believer living in the days after Jesus has come into the world. It is a faulty reading of the Bible to suggest that now Jesus has come, we get rid of the Old Testament. Not at all. So Jesus is explaining, explaining the true meaning of the law of God in the life of a believer. So keep your finger in Matthew 5, but let's do go back to Leviticus 24 because what Jesus is teaching about is the citation from Leviticus 24. It also is in other places, but it's most spelled out in Leviticus 24. So Jesus is explaining the true meaning of the law of God from Leviticus 24. And you want to be looking at Leviticus 24, starting at verse 17, and you'll see that heading that you recognize there, an eye for an eye. So let's, let's look at the law that Jesus is citing so as to understand what he's referring to. So Leviticus 24 at verse 17 says, Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. So I'm sure many of you have heard this phrase, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Well, it comes out of here. But what did it mean in the life of Israel? Well, Jesus is interacting with that thing. This is called uh, the lex talionis, or the law of the talon, the law of the claw, or it's most often known as the law of retaliation, which is why that's the heading over our text in Matthew 5. This is the law of God that cites what the people of God should do with regard to retaliation. Now, let me point out just a few things kind of in summary so that as we go back to Matthew 5, these things will be clear. So this lex talionis, the law of the talon, was intended to prevent, to prevent personal vengeance. To prevent personal vengeance. In another way of saying that, it is to prevent vigilante justice, right? We're all familiar with feuds, think of famous historical feuds, Hatfields and McCoys, blood feuds that get escalated over and over and over and pe as people seek out their own justice. The law of the Talon was intended to prevent individual justice from being carried out and rather to give justice to the law courts of Israel so that people wouldn't in a vigilante way go about taking eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So it was intended to maintain justice through courts, handing out proportionate penalties, or as we say, letting the punishment fit the crime. That's what this is all about. And it was intended to cause evildoers to fear justice. It is about justice, but justice meted out in proper accord. So it was to limit, if necessary, and restrain personal retaliation, but 
As we go back into the New Testament in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees who were using this law to suggest that personal retaliation is required by the law of God. They were using it as a justification for retaliation and revenge. That is to say that the Pharisees promoted the idea of personal retaliation, which is the exact opposite of what this law was intended to do, which is why Jesus interacts with it in such a way to say, you have heard it taught this way, and I'm telling you that it's wrong. It means this. So that's what he's doing as he interacts with this topic. He is teaching that the true fulfillment of an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth is found in the person as an individual who does not seek vengeance. The person who does not seek revenge. So, look at verse 39 as Jesus says, But I say to you, do not resist. Do not resist. Now that word resist, it could mean also oppose, and obviously resist here, but it's, it's a legal term that would be used in legal documents that literally could mean take to court or give testimony against. So Jesus is citing a legal example and says, do not resist the one who is evil, or do not take to court the one who is evil, do not give testimony against the one who is evil. Now I'm not here giving a legal counsel to you. This is spiritual counsel. Jesus is saying this, for you as a Christian believer, the guiding principle of your life is not to stand on your legal rights and bleed out of others' vengeance. It is not with you to enact retaliation on your own accord. Do not make your rights the basis of your relationship with other people. Be prepared to take a lowly position with humility as a servant, being prepared to pay the price of imitating the example of Jesus. Jesus wants us as his followers to be more like him in imitating him in our relationships and interactions with others. And so he says, this is what I'm calling you to do. And then he launches into an explanation of this is what this looks like. And he gives four examples. And they, they come pretty quick. So we'll just look at each one kind of in summary and say this is what this means at this time. And this is what it means now. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to stand on your right in the name of retaliation. So consider this. Verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. Jesus is not prohibiting the use of force by government and government's officials. This is talking about personal and individual applications. Okay? He is intending to restrain the desire to seek revenge in the hearts of his followers. So he says, if anyone slaps you on the cheek, which would have been the most offensive thing you could possibly do in this culture? Now, uh, the actual like, imagery is something of a, a full-handed slap on the face, right? Not a, not a blow per se, but a slap. That would have been, in this culture at this time, more of an insult than a violent crime against you. It's the kind of thing that a person could be fined more than their entire annual wages for such a public offense. And usually this kind of thing would cause you to take an offender to court in the name of what we would call like 
libel or defamation of character. You could, if you like, sue for defamation of character if somebody slapped you and they would be fined their entire annual income. It was that serious. Because they disrespected me. Now, this doesn't mean, again, that Jesus is prohibiting self-defense. It doesn't mean that he is telling us that we should flee from evil, or it does not mean that we should deliberately put ourselves in harm's way. Uh, God forbid, there have been people who suggest that, uh, that battered women are wrong to leave their abusers because they're not turning the other cheek again and again. That is not what this is saying. But what it does mean is, very simply, don't return the blow and therefore escalate the violence. Don't return the blow and escalate the violence to stand on your rights and insist that your dignity is the highest virtue on this earth. That is not the character of a Christian person. That your dignity is the highest virtue in all the earth. Why? What, if someone insults us, if someone offends us, if someone uh, strikes us, we should let insults come to us. Because they will come, won't they? Show by your response that you have no need to retaliate because your identity is secure in Christ. You know who you are. You know what is true of you. Even if you are being the victim of somebody else's hostility, you don't need to rise to meet that and further escalate the situation. Jesus is saying, be different if you're my disciple. Instead of retaliation, be gracious. He also says in verse 40, another illustration, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now he doesn't mean run around naked. It's not what he means here because for the Jewish person, their cloak would be a very valuable thing for them. Uh, people oftentimes would use their cloaks as a, a financial pledge to another party. But the rule of law in uh, the book of Exodus is that if somebody gives you their cloak as a financial pledge, you have to return to them by evening time because usually the same cloak that you wear as an outer coat was also your evening sleepwear as well. So the cloak is a, is a highly dignified thing for the Jewish person. But Jesus' point here is, look, if somebody is looking to take from you, graciously give to them. Don't stand on your legal rights. Where sin abounds, grace should abound. Be open-handed here is what he's saying. The next one in verse 41, if anyone forces you to go one, one mile, go with him two miles. I think this is oftentimes the most misunderstood because it's very particularly contextualized here. Because Jesus is speaking in the first century Palestine when Rome was occupying Israel as a military force. And Roman soldiers had the ability to force Israelites to do certain things because they were the people subjugating the Israelites. They were allowed to require of them certain things. Think, for example, in Luke 23, the man Simon, who is ordered to carry Jesus' cross. The soldier looks at Simon and says, you carry his cross. And he has to do it because the Roman soldier is ordering the Israelite to take this action. And, of course, the Jews despised this because it humiliated them. It emphasized their subjugation. They openly were abused by Roman soldiers. But Jesus is saying here, if anyone forces you to go one mile, meaning if a Roman calls you out and forces you to go on a march, that's what this is referring to. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. And voluntarily so. 
If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with that same person who forced you go two miles. Why? To demonstrate that you belong to a greater empire than Rome. And to demonstrate that the ethic of your life is far exceeding the virtue of the ethics of Rome. Show by your willingness that you're different. He says in verse 42, again, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is, at this time, not a, not a legal duty for early disciples. But Jesus is saying that we should help those who are truly needy to the extent that they resort to begging. Because the law that was intended to restrain evil is also intended to promote grace and mercy. Jesus doesn't teach here to give foolishly. He doesn't teach you to harm by giving. For example, it is not helpful to give an alcoholic a drink. He's not talking about that. But he is saying, and I think we understand this, right? When you are caught in something of a conundrum and you don't know whether to go this way or that way, Jesus is saying, let mercy outweigh the other option. Choose the option that's more gracious. Choose the merciful route. Don't harm the person, but give openly with mercy and grace. So Jesus is saying... An eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth actually means this. It doesn't mean enact your justice in the name of your rights. It means be gracious. It means not to seek out personal retaliation and escalate conflict. So, dear friends, where are you struggling with that idea? Because we all do. Where are you and I struggling with this idea that Jesus is teaching us this morning? Is there bitterness that you have for something that someone has done to you? In the past, maybe a long time ago, and you nurse it in your soul like it happened to you yesterday. Perhaps something that wasn't done to you that you felt was deserved. Somebody close to you, a spouse, a friend, a brother, a sister, a neighbor, somebody did something to you and you have nursed that grudge, and a grudge becomes hatred, and hatred produces the thirst for vengeance. And perhaps even you have thought to take the Christian route and pray for them and seek to forgive that person. But every time you go to pray for them, it stirs up in you the honest reaction that you would be much more satisfied if the Lord would just enact justice on that person. The desire to retaliate. Where are you struggling? What Jesus is teaching us here is that the Christian believer, to distinguish themselves from the world, has to make choices in difficult situations with the deliberate agenda to love and show mercy. Jesus has called us here, even in the Sermon on the Mount, to be peacemakers. Are you a peacemaker when you are offended? Do you take opportunity to make peace with others? Or are you someone who gets so offended that you bear anger, hatred, and a desire for retaliation? Do you think so highly of yourself that being offended is a great evil? You know, one of the things I think would spare us from most of our conflicts, personal conflicts, is if you and I would be more humble so that if someone were to offend us, it is not some cosmic crime as if we are the ends of the earth, but rather in humility, 
we consider a personal offense against us a lowly thing so as to easily be forgiven. The more humble you are, the more easy it is to forgive personal offenses. But the higher you regard yourself, the more severe you think the penalties should be for somebody who would dare offend you. But it is in those hard times when we find out what's in our hearts, don't we? The Word of God is like a mirror to the heart that shows us what's inside. If you find yourself today consumed with anger, spite, rage, hear what Jesus is saying to you. This is a serious spiritual matter in your soul. And a heart that is consumed with a thirst for retaliation is a heart that does not have room for the Spirit of God. A heart that is consumed with a thirst for retaliation has perhaps never tasted the mercy of God. And if it is a true and sincere Christian heart, it is a heart that is in need of great growth and transformation. And where does that growth come from? Where will the understanding of what Jesus is teaching here possibly come from? It'll come from this. It comes from the gospel, of course, that we understand that our sin, your sin and my sin, is an insult, a deep offense, even cosmic treason against the holy God. And through Christ, God meets our offenses with His mercy. He meets our sin with His grace, and Christ seeks to win us by His love. His love that doesn't insist on His own rights. His love is a love that lays down His rights. As 1 Peter 2.23 says, When Christ was reviled, He did not revile in return. And when He suffered, He did not threaten. But He continued entrusting Himself to the Father. And Jesus is saying, Look, my disciples, this is what this looks like. This is what life in my kingdom looks like. This is what a transformed Christian believer looks like. And as we hear the words of Jesus, we should be thinking, shouldn't this, shouldn't this matter for us? And it matters essentially in two places. In one place that it matters, it matters here, right here in this building. What Jesus is saying matters for us in the church because Jesus is saying, look, this is what it means to love one another in Christ. Love is abdicating your rights for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of others. And it's the only way that genuine Christian community can exist. If in Christian community we're always asserting our rights and demanding our preferences and insisting on everything, then you know what we're going to have? We're going to have 3,000 different churches and every one of them is going to have but one member and it's you. Your own little church. But if in the church of God we prioritize this type of character-shaped interaction where we don't insist on our rights as Jesus did, where we prefer one another, where we love one another and forgive offenses easily, then we are walking in the way of Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing. True Christian community. Because it's in those times when we find out how sincere of a church we have. Right? When there's an offense... We find out. It matters in the church, but it also matters before the watching world, doesn't it? For your unbelieving friends, family, neighbors, co-workers. They want to see what you do and how you react as you who claim the name of Jesus. And do you remember this powerful illustration 
from 14 years ago. Remember that shooting at the Amish schoolhouse? That was incredible. October 2nd, 2006, in the West Nickel Mine School, one-room schoolhouse, a man named Charles Roberts, 32 years old, who was a milk delivery driver for that community, took hostages and, and shot eight out of 10 little girls aged six to 13, killing five before committing suicide himself. And do you remember the response? The response from the Amish was, was one thing. They offered grace, mercy, forgiveness. Do you remember the response from the media? How could they do that? Why would they do that? That's wrong. Forgiveness is inappropriate without remorse and punishment. If we do that, we deny the existence of evil, they were saying. But the Amish understood that a willingness to forego vengeance doesn't undo tragedy. It doesn't mean that what happened to you is not evil, but it is the first step toward a future that's more hopeful and transformed in the image of Christ. It was a powerful illustration. The Amish folks invited the family of the shooter to the funerals, and they came. Now you say to yourself, I don't know if I can do that. And I understand that. And that's why Jesus is saying, continue to walk with me and I'll teach you what that looks like. I'll teach you what that means. You say, I don't think I can fathom a love like that. Well, that's because we're not looking deeply enough at the gospel because this is the love with which you have been loved and that is a love that we need to display to a watching world so that as we carry ourselves, we prove our citizenship. And so a world that doesn't trust in Christ looks in and just marvels with amazement without understanding until they come to believe in Christ, which is the only way they will ever be able to make sense of that type of love. Because it only comes by faith through the gospel. People of God, do you find yourself challenged by the Lord Jesus? That's a good thing. Hear the word of the King, dear friends, and grow in obedience. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would transform us. Lord, we confess that we have not obeyed you as we ought, and yet, Lord, we desire to do so, and so transform our hearts that we might prize more deeply obedience to our true King, and so prove our citizenship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.